just bow our heads and uh, pray for a moment. Almighty God, we ask that you would give us insight this morning, insight into what Jesus is saying, but the kind of insight that changes who we are and how we behave. May we meet you in your word today, we pray. Amen. Do please sit. Well, there can be few such enjoyable games for the uh, sad Christian at church as uh, enjoying uh, the preacher squirming. And you must have been at uh, those sermons, especially, I think, from the Gospels, where it looks like what Jesus has to say is extremely plain and obvious. But it might just also be a little uncomfortable. And so you have great pleasure in listening as the preacher tries to persuade you that it is about everything except what it looks like it's about, really. So when we come to uh, this scene of Jesus at a dinner of a Pharisee, uh, there are two problems that I suggest we're going to face. The first of them is uh, we really think it is about who we should invite to dinner. And if we scarcely ever invite anyone to dinner, we'll just switch off. Secondly, we think that any attempt by the preacher to persuade us it's about anything other than who we invite to dinner will avoid the clear implication that actually we jolly well should invite the poor, crippled, lame and blind to dinner. And so you can play the game of watching the preacher squirm. And it isn't that the dinner theme is wrong, but that so much more is going on. It may change change, uh, who we invite for dinner, but it's much bigger than that. How do you know who you are? Uh, You may uh, play with uh, Facebook on the internet, and you know that there's that little box marked status, and it invites you to say what your current status is, um, what's going on in your life, what the state of your relationships is. But of course, it's also a question of saying, well, what is your status? How do you know who you are? What is your status? Well, my status, of course, as you discovered earlier, has shot up this week in the the minds of my children. When when I rejoin them on a holiday next week, uh, they will um, uh, see me and go, wow, Dad, you finally got cool. (laughs) Not. Maybe you judge your status according to the car you drive or the clothes that you wear. Do you have uh, a designer label? in your clothes, or indeed, a designer badge on your car. The world in which Jesus moves as he goes to this dinner party is uh, what people technically call an honour-shame culture. Some of you are from the Orient. Some of you will be aware, having travelled in the Orient. And you'll be familiar with the notion amongst the Chinese of, of face, Losing face, gaining face, never being embarrassed, never being publicly uh, uh, shamed. Cultures, uh, oriental cultures are very full of this sense of honour, which mustn't be undercut. And it shows up all over the, uh, uh, the Bible, 
but normally in ways that are kind of enough like what we have in the West that we can think it's about something else, something that we know about. And so we hear Jesus speaking, or others speaking, and we take them at face value in what they say. But the East was, and still is, a world in which your ability to play with speech is a major part of your honour. Think of the stories of the Arabian Nights, or Samson's riddles, or the criticism of long-winded, wordy prayers that Jesus goes in for. Now, we're not far away, uh, early August, from results weeks, but there were no GCSEs or A-levels in those days, and a great deal depended on your way with words. So much of what we value happens around privacy, the wardrobe that might be full of designer labels, the garage that might have the car. We've got enough of a long kind of Christian heritage that we're a bit down on, on show. It's over the top for us. But other cultures, non-Western cultures, are often very public cultures. There isn't among them the concept of privacy that we often value. And so your social status there may not be so much a matter of the clothes that you wear. That's a matter of private choice. Your status, rather, is something that everyone knows about you. And it's assessed, still in some places, according to how many people are above you on the ladder, on whom you depend, and how many people are below you, who depend on you. And your status is assessed according to your relationships up the ladder and down the ladder, much more than it is according to your things. And more than any other way, your relationships are expressed, especially in the culture of the New Testament, in giving gifts. Suppose for a moment that you are lower in status than a great personage. And so you give them a gift at a carefully worked out level of affordability. Now, you have given them a gift. That means you have put them in your debt. And they are then obliged to recognize you and to be generous in response. Not out of what we might think of as a generous spirit of just grace, of givingness, but, but as a simple function, because it sends a message. I am higher up the ladder than you are. And some of you are hearing John Cleese and uh, Ronnie Barker at that point. But put that out of your mind. I am higher up the ladder than you are, and I can afford to shell out for this kind of gift. And that's the background to these stories of dinner. First story, verses 1 to 6, page 1047, if you've closed it. Now, we read it, that story, partly because of our Protestant heritage, as being about the Jewish law, and it is about that. We read it as being about Jesus, showing that the Pharisees are bad people, and they may have been. But what we miss is that it's also a great deal about Jesus himself. At a meal... Jesus heals a man from dropsy, which I grew up, because of the way it was used in my family, thinking it was a proneness to, be, to accidents. Um, but it isn't. Uh, 
Jesus asks the Pharisees uh, what it, whether what he did in healing the man is lawful on the Sabbath, making the point that God is always willing to do good on any day of the week. That's the obvious stuff, but we can notice what's going on in the speech games that are part of Jesus' world. Jesus is being very clever. Dropsy is not a disease, it's a condition, and it's caused by various diseases. And that, in that condition, the body fills up with water. Jesus points to the law of Moses and to the way it provides that even on the Sabbath, you can pull a human being or an ox out from the water in which they're drowning. But he's also chosen, an ex- he's chosen the example relevantly because here is a man who is drowning in water from the inside. The Sabbath, according to Deuteronomy, the Jewish law, was a day on which to celebrate the rescue uh, from Egypt. Jesus is pointing out, look, the Sabbath law provides for rescue deliberately because it's a commemoration of the fact that we were all rescued. So you can't withhold rescue from anyone. But I'm going to be very clever and choose an example that uh, speaks to the situation of water and drowning, the very situation I've just dealt with in a slightly unusual way. Then secondly, uh, Luke tells us uh, twice the effect of Jesus' speech. Is it lawful, he says, but they remained silent. Silent. Will you not pull him out? Jesus says, but they had nothing to say. In a culture of speech games, Jesus has shut them up. Luke is drawing attention to the way that Jesus is going to come out of this story with hugely enhanced honor. Anyone who can win this kind of verbal battle, and we don't notice that, but anyone who can win this kind of verbal battle is becoming a really important person. And yet all this happens in the house, according to verse 1, of a prominent Pharisee. So yes, Jesus is teaching that the Pharisees are being blind and foolish and obstinate to obsess about details when the law of God required rescue on the Sabbath. And we notice that. But he's also engaging with this great reversal that goes on in Luke's gospel. He goes to the house of someone who is prominent, someone who would have set the table with great awareness of the social status of all those present, and Jesus proves himself to be greater than all the experts at that prominent table. They lose face. He gains face. And then the second story comes along, and that's even sharper. But it can give us a moment of pause. At first, it seems that Jesus is just being manipulative. Tim and Caroline are sitting up in the gallery, and they're getting married next Saturday. Everyone's welcome to the service at 12.30, though there's uh, no crash, so if you've got young, very young children, there may be a problem. Now, there's going to be afterwards, there's going to be a reception, a wedding feast. And some people here, I guess, will be at that feast. 
How should they behave in the light of the story we've heard today? I'd like to say I chose it deliberately, but I can't claim I did. Well, Jesus is clear. Um, They should walk straight past the seating plan and all fight to seat themselves at the table farthest away from the top table. And then they should wait. And when Tim sees Weber there, his best man, seated far away, he should go up to him and say, friend, move up to a better place. Look, there's a seat for you at the top table. And Weber should presumably roll his eyes and say, oh shucks, for me? It would seem as though this story is told to commend a kind of artificial putting ourselves down, precisely so that everyone can then watch us being honoured. But it's not a neutral story. It's not told with an even balance of raising up the humble and putting down the exalted. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and it's that bit that he wants them to grab hold of. He's saying, I want you to learn this. Don't have to face the humiliation of having scrambled to get to the top table only to find that there's some jumped up little preacher who's been invited who puts you down later on. You may end up being told to go and sit by the swing doors to the kitchen. And there are other stories if you're familiar with the New Testament Gospels, that are like this. Stories in which Jesus appears to be commending something different from the kind of nice and gentle, meek and mild Jesus that we kind of have in our picture. Think of the nagging woman who gets her way uh, with the judge. Even if he wasn't going to do it uh, for any reasons of righteousness, change his mind for any reasons of righteousness, says Jesus, he'll do it because he got nagged at. It's not the picture of God that we like. Or think about the steward who, having fiddled the books in one direction, then goes on to fiddle them in the other, at least to get some money in for his employer. Doesn't sound very Christian. Jesus tells stories of people that aren't very nice. And all these stories, they take their point, they have their punch far away from niceness. And this one is really brought home in verse 11. He's talking to the Pharisees, remember, not making a neutral statement. What they need to know is that they are those who are going to be humbled because they've looked to be exalted. As though Jesus is saying to that prominent Pharisee, I am, as a matter of fact, Cleverer than you at word games, I've shut you up. I know the law better than you do. I understand God better than you do, so move over, schmuck. Jesus may be meek, but he is a tiger in defending the people against those who would put them down with false notions of honour. And he would be quite happy for us to see this now as a contest. Pharisees nil and Jesus won. And it's only having played the game on their terms first. That's the genius of this. He plays the game up to this point entirely on their terms. He wins by their rules. 
And having won by their rules, he's earned the right then to change the tone when we come to verse 12, where the tone of contest is is no longer there. He simply wants to talk to the man. He leaves the game of playing behind, and now he's going to tell it the way it is. And the way it is is way different from the way their world worked. This is about who you invite to dinner in a world in which who you invite to dinner defines who you are. Who you invite to dinner is a matter of extending the gift of hospitality. So every invitation is carefully calculated to enhance and establish your status. It's not for nothing that Jesus says, when you give a dinner or luncheon party. It's an occasion on which you're making a gift. So he's speaking about an occasion on which you'd invite those higher up the ladder than you, or at the very least equal to you. And this gift that the Pharisee was offering would create a matching obligation that he would be entertained at some other point. They may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. He's actually subverting Jesus. Jesus is subverting the whole world of status and honor based on this ladder, a ladder that's all about people relating to each other according to status, but leaving God out. He's established his own right, if he chose to exercise it, of the highest honor and status in their world. He's defeated the Pharisees at their own games. But then he goes on to commend a model that brings God back into how we relate to each other. And since he's talking to Pharisees who are passionate about about getting to the resurrection, he says to them, and the outcome will be a place for you at God's feast in the resurrection of the righteous, if you learn how to get this matter of status right. Who you invite to your dinner party, and even the word has all kinds of connotations, didn't it, doesn't it? I, I, I used to, um, uh, when I was growing up, there was a meal, well, it wasn't a meal, really. Um, there was a thing called supper. Um, and supper was a sandwich in a cup of tea that you had about the time of the nine o'clock news. Then I went off to university and I found people who talked about a supper party. It wasn't quite a supper party, it was a supper party. Um, And I think, I'm not quite sure what the relevant status is of a dinner party relative to a supper party. I think supper parties are posher, but I'm not quite sure. But whether you have supper parties or a sandwich at the 10 o'clock news now, uh, 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 before you go to bed, or when you throw posh dinner parties, whichever. They're all largely private. And this is not, about, this is not a private story. It's not a little, little homily to a Pharisee about how to improve his private life. We can illustrate Jesus' meaning actually from the meal that we will share in a few minutes, from the communion service itself. If God in his infinite and genuine generosity of spirit has given us this feast without any regard to our honor or our standing, then we can afford to greet our neighbors at all times as those to whom God has given a role in this great reversal that Jesus so relishes in Luke's gospel. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Luke 4, because he's anointed me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, sight for the blind, release for the oppressed. 
So there's no reason why it shouldn't affect who you have to dinner. Deeply affected. But it needs to go on then to affect our own sense of who we are and who matters to us. It amounts to a command to seek out those who are never going to repay us, those who are lower in life's ladder than we are, and actively seek to be generous and good and kind. And the danger, of course, is that someone here will say, well, that just means that all these people here, who are higher up the ladder than I am, have to be kind to me. That's not your concern. There's always someone lower down the ladder. And the concern for each one of us is to find those who are lower down the ladder than we are and to humble ourselves. Because that both does good by them and also reminds us of where we are before the God who stands far apart from that ladder and who has a resurrection to come. Let's pray. Let's take a moment of quiet uh, and just think for a moment, who's on that ladder above you and below you? Who does your life contact? How do you measure yourself? It's really the same question I've invited you to ask with your children over lunch. Lord Jesus, you are shamelessly uncool, without beauty or majesty to attract us to you, as you uh, were on earth. Nothing in your, in your appearance that we should desire you. And yet we run our lives by beauty and appearance and by values that are far short of the ones you'd have us espouse. These are the kind of stories of yours, Lord Jesus, that uh, leave us saying uh, after a Sunday, well, yes, I suppose things could be a bit different, but then by Monday, life carries on the same. And we ask that you would walk into our lives uh, and change them. Perhaps by a lot, if that's needed. Perhaps by a little. Do whatever it takes, we pray, to remind us that the standards are the standard that matter are the standards of your world and not of ours. Amen.